Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 72, the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Today we open Matthew chapter 22. And it begins with quite a long parable. And unlike some of the other metaphorical and symbolic illustrations that Jesus has been using to instruct and to reply, this is a true parable in the Hebrew literary sense. And thus, we have to recognize it as such. This means <laughs> we have to set our contemporary Western mindsets aside and put on our first century Jewish mindset to get the most out of it. Now I'll remind you that a true parable in the Hebrew sense of it is a fictional story. It has only one moral to it. It always employs people and things and circumstances that are familiar to Yeshua's Jewish listeners. It's not an allegory. The details are relatively unimportant, and often hyperbole is used to heighten the tension in order to draw in the listener. In fact, to pay too much attention to the details will lead us away from the single important point that the parable is attempting to make. Now, perhaps one of the more complex challenges of every parable of Christ is that it is told 100% within the Jewish cultural mindset and experience of the first century. This is one of the several reasons that we spend as much time as we do with the historical background of the Bible characters and setting, since it is not general knowledge that Bible students and God worshipers in general possess, or sadly, are taught. So if a parable has but one single point, that is like the one we're about to study, the point of it stated at the end of it, then why are some so long-winded and elaborate? It's because they were meant to be heard, remembered, and then passed along to others by the spoken word. Therefore, the detail was added in order to embellish, to make it more interesting, more easily memorable. I want to give you a very simple example of this, what I'm talking about. Very wealthy, older man. Lives in a hundred-room mansion on a thousand acres of beautiful and well-maintained grounds. His curious granddaughter comes to him one day, asks if he would, if she, uh, he would tell her how it happened that he became so wealthy since she knew that he came to America as a poor immigrant. She also asks how this beautiful house came to be. He replies, I was poor, then I got rich. I bought land, then I built this house. End of story. Not very satisfying, 
not very memorable. And while what he said was true and factual, a little more information and color would have made for a beautiful story that this young girl might have cherished and then handed down to her own children. So a parable is constructed in a way that adds details for the sake of color and depth and to make it feel more relevant to us and to our daily lives. It takes us to the same truth as if it was told coldly and abruptly. But instead, it makes the story into something enjoyable and informative and unforgettable and more likely to be communicated to others. Now, when I said the details of the parable are unimportant, I meant it in the sense that they can be a distraction if we're not careful. For a first century Jewish listener, the details that were woven into a parable were of familiar concepts. They're of common knowledge. So the scene Jesus was setting and its several cultural nuances were easily grasped. In fact, as more and more ancient Jewish literatures discovered and translated and then studied, <clears throat> it seems that nearly all of the illustrations and parables Yeshua spoke had already existed. And they were in use in some form or another in the times immediately following Christ. We find some of these sayings and parables written down by the rabbis in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. Yet, for us of the 21st century, we can easily misconstrue the meaning of Yeshua's parables and illustrations because we're so far removed from the biblical era and culture. So I'm going to explain some of the details so that we can appreciate how those ancient listeners would have understood it and therefore how we must understand it. The meaning of Christ's parables does not evolve over time. They remain the same. It's only how to apply the moral of the story in this modern, fast-moving technological world we live in today. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we're going to read it all. I'd like you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> Yeshua again used parables in speaking to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son, but when he sent his slaves to summon the invited guests to the wedding, he refused to come. So he sent some more slaves, instructing them to tell the guests, Look, I prepared my banquet. I've slaughtered my bulls. I fattened my cattle. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding. They weren't interested. Went off, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest grabbed his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was furious. And he sent his soldiers who killed those murderers and burned down their city. Then he said to his slaves, Well, the wedding feast is ready, but the ones who were invited didn't deserve it. So go out to the street corners and invite the bank to the banquet 
as many as you can find. The slaves went out into the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, the bad along with the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who wasn't dressed for a wedding. So he asked him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and, hand and foot, throw him outside in the dark. In that place, people will wail and grind their teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Then the parashim, the Pharisees, went away, put together a plan to trap Yeshua with his own words. They sent him some of their Talmudim, their disciples, some members of Herod's party. And they said, Rabbi, we know that you tell the truth and really teach what God's way is. You aren't concerned with what, what other people think about you, since you pay no attention to a person's status. So tell us your opinion. Does Torah permit paying taxes to the Roman emperor or not? Yeshua, however, knowing their malicious intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used to pay the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose name and picture are these? The emperors, they replied. Yeshua said, No. Give the emperor what belongs to the emperor and give to God what belongs to God. And on hearing this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away that same day. Some Sadukim, some Sadducees, came to him. And they are the ones who say there is no such thing as resurrection. So they put to him a she'elah, a question. Rabbi, Moshe, Moses said, If a man dies childless, his brother must marry his widow and have children to preserve the man's family line. There were seven brothers. The first one married and then died. And since he had no children, he left his widow to his brother. The same thing happened to the second brother and the third and finally to all seven. And after them all, the woman died. Now, in the resurrection, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all married her. And Yeshua answered them, The reason you go astray is that you are ignorant both of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and of the power of God. For in the resurrection, neither men nor women will marry. Rather, they will be like angels in heaven. And as for whether the dead are resurrected, haven't you read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. And when the crowds heard how he taught, they were astounded. But when the Pharisees learned that he had silenced the Sadducees, they got together, and one of them, who was a Torah expert, asked a Shelah a question to trap him. Rabbi, which of the mitzvot, which of the commands in the Torah, is the most important? And he told them, you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important mitzvah, most important command. A second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the Torah and the prophets are dependent upon these two commands. 
And then turning to the assembled Pharisees, Yeshua put a Shelah question to them. Tell me your view concerning the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said to him, David's. Then how is it, he asked them, that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? When he says, Adonai said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I put, my, put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one could think of anything to say in reply. And from that day on, no one dared put to him another Shelah. This is one of these situations that would have served us better if the chapter change in the verse markings that were added to our Bibles a thousand years ago weren't there at all. Because what was going on in chapter 21 simply flows interrupted into chapter 22. The chapter and verse format as it appears to us in our Bibles makes it seem as though what was happening in chapter 21 has come to an end. In chapter 22 now, it begins a new scene with Jesus speaking to other and different people. That's not the case. The final words of chapter 21, chapter 21 were, as the head Kohanim, the head priest, and the Pharisees listened to his stories, they saw that he was speaking about them. But when they set about to arrest him, they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds considered him a prophet. And then the scene, it continues with verse 1 of chapter 22 saying, Yeshua again used parables speaking to them. You see? So the scene of chapter 21 continues just with more conversation. The them are the same fellows we were reading about in chapter 21. So Jesus was in Jerusalem at the temple, still jousting with the same chief priests and Pharisees. In other words, Yeshua was doing battle with both sides of the Jewish religious system that were engaging him, the temple side and the synagogue side. And these two sides, that under normal circumstances were quite separate and had little use for one another, well, they found a common enemy in Yeshua of Nazareth. Now, the all-important context that we must hold on to throughout this parable, really all throughout chapter 22, is Jesus criticizing and warning these representatives of the Jewish religious leadership. Now, not necessarily all of the Jewish religious leadership, but only those who thought and behaved as those that were standing before him. This was not a diatribe against the entire religious leadership, nor against the Jewish people in general. But it was part of a Christ-led reformation of their biblical Hebrew faith that had become so muddled and polluted with man-made doctrines that it obscured the holy and true word of the Word of God. 
Yeshua's words were directed and nuanced towards these misguided leaders who held such great authority and sway over the common people in Jewish society. Whatever these men said, right or wrong, people believed. After all, these leaders were considered to be, they held themselves up to be, experts. Experts of all matters concerning the Jewish faith. A good and proper analogy of the Jewish religious leadership of that era would be the rabbis, pastors, ministers, Bible teachers, and commentators of our time. Now notice how the opening words of the parable are spoken in classic parable style. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to... Okay. So the instruction Jesus is about to give us is to explain something important about the kingdom of heaven. And to do so, he's going to use a familiar illustration within Jewish society to lead his listeners to his point. So the fictional stories about a king's throne, a banquet. Kings, farmers, and women were often used as the fictional foils in Jewish parables. And immediately there is a detail provided that would have been common knowledge to the first century Jews, but can escape us. It is that not, this is not just any lavish banquet. It's a wedding banquet. That the groom of the wedding is the king's son simply adds gravity to the situation. Now, in that era, there was little more socially important than a wedding. So what we need to pay most attention to is the actions than to the specific people involved. If one was invited to a wedding, it was far more of a social obligation to attend than it was to any kind of event invitation with an accompanying banquet. To choose not to go was to bring shame to the one holding the event. And the one who skipped it would normally be, have been looked at as a rather bad person. That a king is holding the event really makes the invitation more of a summons with a terrible authority behind it. Now, since this parable is constructed within a Jewish cultural context, and we need to look for a connection to something else in a Jew's common reality that they would have easily recognized. And I suspect that that something was Proverbs 9. Now we're going to read the opening verses, but before I do, I want to remind you that Yeshua was seen by his followers as well as his admirers as possessing the spirit of Solomon, the spirit of the son of David. And part of the tradition about Solomon is the one we're most familiar with, his God-given wisdom. So wisdom was seen by many who looked up to Jesus as one of his extraordinary attributes. So here's Proverbs 9 as it begins. 
Wisdom has built herself a house. She has carved herself seven pillars. She has prepared her food, spiced her wine. She has set her table. She has sent out her young girls with invitations. She calls from the heights of the city. Whoever is unsure of himself, turn in here. To someone weak-willed, she says, come, eat my food, drink the wine I have mixed. Don't stay unsure of yourself, but live. Walk in the way of understanding. Now, wisdom in the Oriental cultures of that era was thought of as a person. A person in a very similar way to how many Christian denominations view the concept of the Trinity as consisting of three persons. So wisdom was seen as a divine entity, much more than just a virtuous attribute. So in this proverb, we have a feast prepared, and we have wisdom as the one who's hosting the feast. All are invited, even the weak-willed. So the themes of Proverbs 9 and of this parable of Jesus are quite similar in their nature, and very likely Christ's listeners would have made the connection and felt that his parable was a sort of a midrash, sort of a commentary on Proverbs chapter 9. Now before we proceed, it's good to notice that Mark's gospel does not contain this particular parable, but Luke's does have something similar. Now, the majority of commentators, ancient and modern, see Luke 14, verses 15 through 24, as the parallel to what we read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. So let's pause to read it in Luke. However, I want to start reading it a little bit earlier in the chapter so that the context for the parable in Luke is much better displayed. So open your Bibles to Luke. Just turn a few pages over to Luke, chapter 14. And we're going to read the first 24 verses. Luke 14, 1 through 24. One Shabbat, Yeshua went to eat in the home of one of the leading parashim, one of the leading Pharisees, and they were watching him closely. And in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. And Yeshua spoke up and asked the Torah experts and the Pharisees, does the Torah allow healing on Shabbat on the Sabbath or not? But they said nothing. So taking hold of him, he healed him and sent him away. To them he said, which of you, if a son or an ox falls into a well, will hesitate to haul him out on Shabbat? And to those things they could give no answer. Well, when Yeshua noticed how the guests were choosing for themselves the best seats at the table, he told them this parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down at the best seat. Because if there is someone more important than you, who has been invited, the person who invited both of you might come and say to you, give this man your place. Then you'll be humiliated as you go to take the least important place. Instead, when you are invited, go and sit in the least important place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, 
go on up to a better seat. Then you will be honored in front of everyone sitting with you because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeshua also said to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors, for they may well invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. Instead, when you have a party, invite poor people, disfigured people, the crippled, the blind. How blessed you will be that they have nothing with which to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. On hearing this, one of the people at the table with Yeshua said to him, Oh, how blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he replied, Once a man gave a banquet and invited many people, and when the time came for the banquet, he sent a slave to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything's ready. But they responded with a chorus of excuses. The first said to him, I've just bought a field, I have to go out and see it. Please accept my apologies. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to test them out. Please accept my apologies. Still another said, I've just gotten married, so I can't come. The slave came and reported these things to his master. Then the owner of the house, in a rage, told the slave, quick, go out into the streets and alleys of the city, bring in the poor, the disfigured, the blind, and the crippled. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, go out to the country roads and boundary walls and insistently persuade people to come so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. End of story. See, notice in Luke, Jesus told this parable on a Shabbat, Sabbath, in the personal home of a leading Pharisee, probably somewhere along the road to Jerusalem. Now, Yeshua was dining with this leader and with others. And verse 7 explains that Yeshua watched how the guests were attempting to seat themselves according to their own perceived social status and rank. Therefore, in verse 12, he says to his Pharisee host, that he shouldn't invite only the aristocrats and his relatives to his home, but also the poor and the lame. And a person at the table with Yeshua was so overcome by the truth and the wisdom of Christ's words that he exclaimed, how blessed people will be who eat bread, who eat at a feast in the kingdom of God. And then Yeshua responds with a parable about a man giving a banquet, inviting the wealthy and the landowners, but they shun the invite because they have other things they feel are more important. So the man orders his servants to go out to the highways and byways, and they invite strangers and common folk to eat the food that is otherwise going to go to waste. That's pretty much the end of the parable. Now, my opinion is that this parable in Luke, while built upon a similar core truth, and having a few other similarities to the parable we're studying in Matthew chapter 22 also has many differences. Okay, there, there seems to be a common mindset, I think kind of a common, common uh, unconscious assumption, if you would, among, among Bible academics and teachers that when we read about things that Christ said in the different gospels, that 
he only would have said them one time and in one way, and we'll never hear of them again. Therefore, a contest among intellectuals erupts to determine which of the Gospels is telling us the most correct version of the story. Or, which is the actual original story from which the other Gospel writers drew their information, but they modified it? Now again, this assumes that even though, as with our current parable, that the setting of the parable between the two Gospel accounts is different. Some of the most important elements of the story are different. The characters are different. Nonetheless, the parable of Luke 14 is the same event, same moment, telling the same parables, Matthew chapter 22, and this parable spoken was spoken only this one time. Now, folks, this is just not how people genuinely operate. And I don't for a second believe Christ operated that way. He would have told similar stories in different settings at different times using somewhat different words, each story tailored to the circumstance at hand, even to the, though the moral or the point of the story was similar to others of the stories we read of him telling. Okay, That is, he would have told the same story or parable to make a point that would have varied just a little bit to fit the application and the audience at hand. So no, we should not compare the Luke parable to Matthew's parable and say they're the same, with one account of it being more accurate than the other. It's always better, always better, to look at the same story as told in the various gospel accounts in order to gather the most information available in order to achieve the most well-rounded understanding of it that we can. That said, we're going to look no further at Luke 14. It doesn't contain the same parable that we're reading about in Matthew 22, nor do we find this parable in the book of Mark. So the one in Matthew chapter 22 stands alone among the Gospels. Now, <clears throat> in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 22, I want you to notice the careful wording. The king sent servants to summon those he had invited. In other words, the invitations had been sent at an earlier time as a notification of an upcoming event. Now the banquet has been prepared. The guests are summoned. Come immediately. That is, the assumption in the parable is that the invitations to the wedding were accepted. Now it's time to act by coming to the feast. But what happens? The guests refuse to come. Yet the unusually patient and benevolent king sends another group of servants and to give them a second chance, the servants tell the guests that everything, all the preparations have been made, the bulls have been slaughtered, they've been cooked, everything's completely ready. But the guests were, un were unmoved. Some said, you know, I'd like to come, but I have to mow my lawn today. Others said, yeah, but I need a day to rest and put my feet up because we stayed out pretty late last night. 
Stolliter said, I'd normally come, but man, there's a great football game on today. Still others said, okay, you get my point. It doesn't actually say that, but that's essentially in modern terms what the ungrateful guests responded with. And the parable went on, one went off to his farm to oversee its operations, no doubt. Another go looked after his business, that is to continue to make profit. But worst of all, the remainder of the guests grabbed hold of the king's servants, abused them, and then murdered them. And I remind you, this is a fictional story, an exaggerated fictional story, with a goal of leading us to a moral. Now, I'm going to pause here to preach something that I think is from the Lord. And admittedly, in doing so, I'm going to use some allegory. Yet this parable of the king's son's wedding feast uses some powerful elements that I can't just let pass by. Just as the wedding guests at the, uh, in the parable were obligated to get up from their comfortable homes and leave behind what seemed at the time to be more important to them to come to the wedding feast and thus honor the king, so are followers of the God of Israel and his son Yeshua obligated to obey him, worship and glorify him, and to gather together in holy assembly, if at all possible. See, what we're doing today and other days, when we come together as a community of believers, is to worship and glorify the Lord in music, in praise, in prayer, and in learning his ways through learning his word. And it necessarily begins with our presence begins even earlier with our determination that despite the business of life and the many opportunities and options that we have to do other pressing or especially enjoyable things, we will make gathering together in order to communally worship God as a top priority in our lives. And whether you're sitting in this sanctuary before me today or you're watching this at home, Setting aside the time to worship and praise God, and especially in the company of fellow believers, is not merely a nice thing to do. It's our duty, as far as it's up to us. It's one of the several ways we are to acknowledge the importance of the Lord in our lives, not to acknowledge it to others, but to acknowledge it to Him through our actions. You know, over and over, we are warned by Jesus that merely claiming belief isn't enough. Thousands, millions, at the moment Judgment Day arrives, are going to jump up and confidently shout what? Lord! Lord! Yeshua says he's going to respond to many startled saying, I never knew you. He didn't mean, oh, you're a stranger to me. He meant that despite what you claim, you never acted out what you say you believe. 
There's too little actual evidence of your stated devotion to Christ to count as one of his. Listen, I've sat where you were seated. Long time ago, I went to church services only if I had nothing else that needed to be done. That I, something maybe I preferred to do. I saw it as purely up to me. It was an option that in no way affected my relationship with the Lord. He'll understand, I told myself. But then the tragedies in my life proved I was wrong. Not because I think the Lord cursed me with tragedy, but because if I had worshipped Him, if I had stayed closer to Him, I probably would have made different and better life choices. That very likely would have averted some, maybe most, of those tragedies. I learned that we just cannot have it both ways. Trust in God cannot just be a slogan or just skin deep. We must make every effort to come to the King when we're summoned to demonstrate to him our loyalty and our allegiance, to sit at his feet, to learn his wisdom as we gather together with like-minded believers whom we can befriend, we can encourage, we can love, we can help. And this only comes out of fellowshipping for the purpose of worshiping the Creator. Look, our God allows us in our foolishness to ignore the summons, have it our way. Eventually, we're going to pay a price. May those with ears hear. Going in another direction. By this early point in the parable, the questions as to whom or what the king and his son and the wedding banquet and the invited guests represent come front and center to the Christian church. The king, it's usually said, represents God. The son, of course, must be Christ. The wedding banquet, of course, must be the same as the wedding feast of the Lamb we read about in Revelation 19. So this parable is actually a prophecy of the far future. The invited guests that won't come are assumed to be the Jewish people. And the replacement guests that the king ordered his servants to go out and gather are the Gentile church. Folks, just as I use some elements of this story to allegorize and make an application, my application, hear this, my application was not the moral or point of this parable. And neither are any of these traditional identifications of the people in this story correct. That's because the nature of a parable is not to have each of these characters or events or whatever as an allegorical or symbolic representation of someone or something. It's not how they work. They're just details added to embellish the story in order 
to get and hold our attention and to lead us to the point. See, we as Gentile Christians and Messianic believers have had through the centuries this troubling tendency to set aside the Jewish cultural context of the Bible stories and their characters and therefore the points being made to replace them with ideas that in no way existed at that time among those people and would not come into existence until centuries later and then only among Gentiles, not among Jews. Yes, we can legitimately borrow from this parable and we can fashion some excellent and appropriate metaphors and illustrations to talk about the Father and the Son, the end times, to use them to explain some important spiritual and practical things about our faith. Frankly, that's what most good preachers and speakers strive to do. But that doesn't mean that our allegories and applications are what Yeshua was actually teaching at that time. Or what the people that heard him thought a particular teaching meant. See, the idea we are to obtain at this point of the parable is of the shocking fupa of the social etiquette by these invited guests who had the gall to refuse to attend their king's son's wedding banquet. Man, it just doesn't get much worse. But even more shocking is that they didn't just leave it there. Some of them even murdered the messengers. Now, in other words, they exposed their absolute and resolute rejection of the king, of his authority, of his summons. So what's the king to do? Well, this time, instead of sending his servants as messengers, the king sends armed soldiers. And the gracious invite and summons that was rejected was exchanged for merciless retribution. And on behalf of the king, his soldiers killed the murderers, burned down their city. Now let's pause again. In the Gentile Christian world of allegorical interpretation, the majority of Bible scholars see what's occurring in the parable as God's judgment on the Jewish people. The burning down of the city is most often interpreted as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now some of this is because so many scholars say that the book of Matthew was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this burning down of the city is meant to show the king's fury and the collateral damage that comes with it. Now, although because the story is aimed at the Pharisees and the chief priests, it's hard not to think that Jesus didn't intend these Jerusalem-based religious leaders to assume that he meant the place of their government, Jerusalem, was going to be laid waste. Now, after the king's retribution has run its course, he decides that since the ones he invited didn't come, he'd extend the offer to other people. And in the Jewish understanding, the invited ones are the wealthy and the aristocrats. 
Now, I mentioned in earlier lessons that the Jews believed that wealth and high societal position was a blessing from God. Therefore, the wealthy and the aristocrats had to be closer to God than the common folks could ever hope to. So, in this parable, from the Jewish perspective, the king rejected the aristocrats and the wealthy who were assumed to be closer to God and instead went seeking the poor, the common, the underprivileged classes of people who were assumed not to be as close to God to favor with this fine banquet. Something that was near unimaginable. Again, what I just told you added to the shock value of this story. Well, we're told in the complete Jewish Bible that the servants went out into the streets to find more people. The Greek word is hodos, and it more means road. Other English Bible versions say highway. That's a bit better translation because the word street seems to indicate something small and local for us. But that can't be the case. You know why? Because the city with its streets has just been destroyed by the king. No, it means the king's servants are looking for people who live outside the city. People coming on a highway from other places to the city. I want to pause again. The rather standard Christian interpretation over the centuries is that the king is looking to replace the Jewish invitees with Gentile invitees. In other words, the Jews rejected the offer from the king, so Gentiles would be sought out and they would happily accept the offer. Now, the church, Gentile, of course, replaces the Jews. But even the conservative Bible scholars, such as Davies and Allison and Ben Witherington and, and Daniel J. Harrington, they all scoff at such a notion because no such implication is awarded. There's no change in ethnicity implied here. This is a Jewish context, start to finish, just as with all of Christ's teachings and parables. So the change of guests is not a switching out of ethnicities. It is a switching out of those belonging to a certain level of social status. The least social status replaces the greatest social status. The poor who had been further from God replaced the rich who had been nearer to God. At least that's as it was in Jewish eyes. Ah, but there's more. There would be no discriminating between the good and the bad among the new batch of people invited. No judging, at least for the moment, between the evil and the righteous. All the people that came within the sight of the servants were to be invited to the wedding banquet at the call of the king. Yet it seems all is still not well. Although the net now is widely cast to gathering guests of all kinds to come, there are entrance requirements. 
the replacement guests arrive. The king comes in to look them over, welcome them to his son's wedding banquet. But lo and behold, there's a problem. There was one man that wasn't properly dressed for the occasion. In other words, he did not come prepared as he no doubt knew he should have. So the king confronts this unprepared guest and demands to know just how he got into this banquet without being properly dressed. The man was speechless because he knew he was wrong. Apparently, he was hoping he wouldn't be noticed or that perhaps the wedding garment requirement had been abolished. In that era, it was not uncommon that a host would provide proper garments for his guests at a wedding banquet because there was a cost for such fine clothes. Therefore, no one had an excuse for not honoring the host by being properly attired for such an important occasion as a wedding feast. Well, this ungrateful, impertinent guest is now summarily thrown out of the king's palace Tied up and bound, he is put outside into the dark where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. The church interprets this as speaking of the grave or perhaps hell. Maybe the lake of fire or simply complete separation from God. However, this interpretation is reading some far later Christian doctrine back into the story. Now, almost certainly, when the words of the king kicking the man into the outer darkness are used, the idea being expressed is the Hebrew concept of choshek, choshek, that Christ is thinking and he's describing, and it was all very well understood in Jewish culture. Choshek means darkness, but not like the darkness of nighttime. That means la'il. That's la'il in, in Hebrew. Choshek means an evil darkness, something depressing, if not terrifying. The total absence of godly illumination. And for this reason, it is indeed a place or a condition of wailing and despair that reminds a Jew of their exile in Egypt and one of the plagues that consumed Egypt in darkness. But what it would not have mentally pictured to the Jewish listeners was a spiritual place of eternal pain and torment, like hell. Then the parable ends with the moral to the story so we don't have to piece it together to wonder. For many are invited, but few will be chosen. All that story to get to this. Now, because this is such a long parable, I'll repeat. This is Yeshua speaking directly to the Pharisees and the chief or the senior priests at the temple in Jerusalem. He's aiming this at them, and they're very well aware of it. And despite all the great opportunities for meaningful illustrations by Bible teachers and rabbis and pastors that are found in this very meaty parable, there is one and only one moral and point to it. For many are invited, but few will be chosen.
Who are the many? At this point in the story, we find out that the many could said to be all. Everyone, rich or poor, righteous, unrighteous, whole, uh, highly or, or lowly placed in the Jewish societal hierarchy. The aristocratic Jews didn't respond to the invitation. And while many of the common Jews did, some were good, some were bad. An example of the bad was the man who wasn't wearing a wedding garment. He was thrown out. So he clearly represents the class of common folks who are invited, but some are not righteous, so they will not be chosen. Now let's not go outside Jewish ethnicity in the meaning of this parable, because that's all that's being contemplated at this time. It's only after Yeshua's death and resurrection, only afterwards, that the gate's going to be opened wider and that Gentiles will be, will be pursued and welcomed to join with believing Jewish brothers and sisters. Now let's address another matter of later Christian doctrine that also gets read back into this story with Calvin being one of the more notable contributors. Some of you may already have guessed it. It's the issue of predestination or predetermination. That is, that God has already chosen from eternity past, from among the many who will be the few, He chooses and He accepts. And while I don't accept such a doctrine, those Christian leaders who do would be better to abandon pointing to this parable as one of their proofs, because anyway, one wants to look at it, the reason for God not choosing anyone in this story has solely to do with that person's own failures. It's not out of serendipity or some kind of unchangeable destiny. The chosen are those who respond appropriately to the king's invitation. In this case, it's the failure of a man who indeed responded to the invitation, but then behaves inappropriately. His actions are not appropriate. Knowing better than to be found without his wedding garment, at the wedding banquet, at the of the most important person he'll ever encounter, a king. Well, with the ending of the parable, the chief priests and the Pharisees, stinging from Yeshua's hard-hitting words, go off to plot a way to rid themselves of this, this Galilean holy man that's stirring up such a pot of trouble for them. So later, they send some others to try to entrap him with what they think is a question that no matter how he answers it, he's going to condemn himself. That's what we'll study the next time we meet.